0: Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 9. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge and talking about all those things that you need to be a good doctor but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Munro, a General Surgical Registrar in the North East of England and host of this podcast, Doctor Informed. Now, I promised that in this half of the season, I had some exciting and gritty topics coming up. And the first in that lineup is today's episode, exploring addiction in doctors and healthcare professionals. We'll discuss types of addiction, how to recognize problem behaviors in yourself, and also how to recognize and support colleagues who are affected by these issues. During my research into this topic, one thing struck me. None of us are immune to struggling with addiction, and this is certainly not about weakness. Today, I hope we can destigmatise this really important issue in order to tackle it head on and be better at supporting our colleagues and ourselves. Joining me today, I have a whole team of experts, and I can't wait to pick their brains about this. First of all, Ruth Mayle, would you like to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? Um, all right.
1: Ruth Mayle, I'm a retired consultant aesthetist. I'm a trustee with the Sick Doctors Trust, which helps addicted doctors and dentists. I'm chairman of the Northwest branch of the British Doctors
0: and Dentists Group, which is a peer support group for addiction. And Liz Croton, it's also a pleasure to have you with us today. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about what you do and your involvement in this topic area?
2: Hi, hi, yes, so my name is Liz Croton, I'm a a GP by background, Um, I've known Ruth for for many years, and uh, I am also a trustee of the Sick Doctors Trust, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about later, it's a charity, um, fantastic charity, Um, and I work for Practitioner Health as a clinician as well, and have done for the last three years, as well as some frontline GP work as well, just, just to kind of keep me busy as it were.
0: Thank you so much, Liz. And Zaid Al Najjar, could you tell us about yourself?
3: Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Zaid Al Najjar. I'm, I'm also a GP um, uh, and I live in London. I'm uh, one of the medical directors at NHS Practitioner Health, uh, which is a free and confidential service uh, for healthcare professionals with mental health and addiction issues.
0: Thank you so much, Zade. Um, I really want to come back to you talking about the organisations you're all involved with um, and how they help doctors and healthcare professionals. because obviously this work is really important. Um, but I wanted to start from the very beginning to really understand this topic. Um, addiction obviously felt like a huge, important topic to cover. And when I spoke to my colleagues, I did a quick straw poll about this. There were lots of really important questions. Um, and many people I spoke to reflected on the stigma that still remains around this area. One person I talked to um, described becoming addicted. And I should reference that this was a little bit of a tongue in cheek um uh, comment to a game on their mobile called Candy Crush Saga when they were a foundation doctor um which got them through uh, a really difficult time um or a really difficult job um and we sort of chuckled about this but obviously I, I reflecting on this it kind of got me thinking when do these coping behaviors um as as doctors or indeed any healthcare professional become addictions because we all develop coping strategies but are there qualities of a thing or a substance that are required to pre-exist for it to become an addiction? Zaid, I'd like to start with you. Can you provide a few definitions or diagnostic criteria that helps us understand what addiction is or more importantly, what it isn't?
3: Um, So I think that we all have uh, coping mechanisms um, which help us well, cope with every life, everyday life stresses, difficulties, challenges that we all encounter. Um, but I think, in terms of addiction and unhealthy coping mechanisms, mechanisms, it's when those, when those mechanisms lead to difficulties and probably ill health, potential for ill health, um, with us. So, for example. I think almost anything probably could become addictive and there are but there are some things which uh, inevitably are are more addictive by by nature nicotine alcohol um drugs and so gambling um internet uh, porn all sorts of things and then there are other there are other things that people use as more healthy coping mechanisms for example um i don't know going for long walks exercise uh socializing um and i think it just depends on on what what the outcome of of those mechanisms are so i think people people can for example exercise is a very very common one particularly with with our patient cohort lots of people like to exercise it helps them de-stress uh, increases their their levels of energy um and serotonin um evidence shows but some people become addicted to it um as well so i've certainly seen that so i think it just depends on the the uh well what it is that you are using to cope And the um, effect that that might have on you in the longer term Um, and whether you are able to stop with that difficulty. And I think that's key.
0: Ruth, I'm interested from a personal experience point of view, um, as somebody who is recovering from addiction, were there preconceived ideas you had about what addiction was? And and has that changed through your, your journey?
1: Uh, Yes, to both of those. (laughs) Um, My preconceived ideas were that it always happens to somebody else. Um, Everybody around me does it, so it's all right. Um, But um, the things that characterize moving from social use to addiction, I think, are the classic things that they mention in in the definitions, um, like craving. Um, uh, the onset of craving and this um, totally baffling sort of compulsion to carry on doing it even though you know what the negative consequences are like. For instance, I dropped the casserole dish I was about to put on the table when I had people for dinner. All sorts of things. Um, Turning up late for job interviews because I hung over or something. Um, And broken promises, loss of family life and things. Um, and then, I mean, as people who are prescribed opiates for um, uh, nor- normal people in inverted commas, for pain relief say, they will exhibit tolerance, um, you know, and not getting the same effect from the given dose. Um, so that's not specific to addiction, but that, that does happen as well. Um, and I think... yeah I mean, unlike a lot of people, I didn't have a family history of any addictions um i uh that that's a, the big number one thing is a genetic predisposition um personality traits and and things I've always tended to be a glass half empty sort of person you know not a bit negative um Access played a bit of a part in some of the drugs I used as as being an anaesthetist. And then often there's some sort of event that precipitates the whole thing, starting to spiral out of control. I'm not sure what that was. But um, I was in what's called denial for a long time, and I really couldn't see the harm that I was doing. So, So, yeah. And I think a lot of doctors are in denial and justify it, you know, by COVID for instance, although that was entirely justifiable, um, uh, I don't know, I don't know what sparked off my, my just taking it to extremes, there was always just that bit further, you, I, you know, if I was taking uppers and party drugs, there was always that bit higher that you could get, you know, um, which which a lot of people are just happy with one ecstasy tablet, say, you know, but I always had to have more, Um I'm
0: really interested to pick up on something you've said there about um, sort of family history, pre existing personality traits, Um, because, you know, I've heard people colloquially talk about addictive personalities. And I'm interested, um, Liz and Zaid as well for your opinions on this. Is there such thing as somebody that is likely to get addicted that has an addictive personality? Or is that, you know, one of these myths that gets built up?
2: Oh, I've certainly heard that term. I, I don't like it myself, personally. Mm. I don't like the language around it because it kind of attaches addiction to identity. Sort of saying, mm. well, that's just kind of how I am. And, and that's, um, that's something that kind of keeps people stuck, I think, if they, they believe that. Um, I think every addiction has a purpose. Um, and I think we have to look at you know what that purpose might be it's very easy just to see the behavior or or the substance and go yeah well but there's 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 something driving it you know there's a there's an unmet need there's something going on there um so typically it's emotional pain not always um as doctors we like to put things into boxes because it makes it simple and think that everybody kind of has the same thing um but it's it's not it's it's individual to the person um but I, I, I tend to see it as something that people do um, rather than who they are. And I think it's really important that certainly when I'm talking to people with practitioner health and certainly on the, on the, on the Sick Doctors Trust um, helpline, we, we, we very much I try to frame it as, as something that someone is doing rather than this is kind of who you are. Um, because I think that helps people kind of extract from it, really, because the, the really important thing to say is that, you know, people can get better from this. Um, and, and that's there's a lot of hope. Actually, it's really important that people know that.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic reflection. Thank you for that, Liz. Um, The other thing that um, Ruth had said that I I kind of picked up on there was that that belief that it happens to someone else. um, And, you know, you talk about professional identity as a doctor. You know, I think it'd be very easy to think, well, you know, that's what patients do and I'm a doctor, so I don't do that. Um, Zayd, is that something that people talk about a lot when they... um, you know, come to organisations such as yours, is that, is, you know, is that a starting block? You almost have to unpack that belief that it, it is something that happens to someone else.
3: I think one of the most difficult steps for for people to to navigate really is the acceptance that it's an issue for them. Mm. Um, and I think that's because it requires you to demonstrate a level of vulnerability um, and acceptance that actually you are you are a human being. Um, and that uh, you are a patient. So a lot of the work that we do um, is about allowing the people who come to us, our patient cohort doctors and healthcare professionals, to just be patients because they spend their entire lives um, dealing with patients and being that professional, directing care, uh, making clinical decisions, but they don't, and even when they present to Local services like their GP, or and we've all had experiences of this, I'm sure, um, with with clinicians that you've needed to be treated by. well uh, you're a doctor. What do you think? Um, so uh, it's it is really difficult for for doctors and healthcare professionals to just allow themselves to, to be treated um, as a patient, and that's part of a lot of the work that we do is just giving them. The assurance that they can do that in the service, the space to do that, allow the trust to build up because trust is also a major issue. There's a lot of fear around what might happen to them in terms of their profession, their personal lives, um, the, the regulator involvement potentially. There's a lot of fear around it, so it is a it is a big a big issue for them.
0: I um I want to come back to your points about um you know, how you think it's going to be how it's going to affect you professionally. Um, But sort of starting from the beginning, if you are somebody who maybe is struggling with certain addictive or addicted behaviors, what's the first step? um, And, you know, Ruth or Liz, happy for you to both jump in here. What do you think the first step in in recognizing those behaviors in yourself is?
1: oh gosh <laughs> um I don't know it's um I think I've already said how i how i when I was really pinned down how i i was made to see what I'd been doing um about i don't th- i don't think my work suffered for it i mean we are we do manage to be very high functioning alcoholics and addicts mm. somehow um mm. But um, I I think, if I can turn it around and and be objective for a moment rather than subjective, um, I think the main thing is a change in behaviour, you know, behaviour is the number one sign. So a change in behaviour in someone from their normal pattern um, should be paid heed to. It's not always addiction, sometimes something else is going on. but. you know, someone becomes late or disorganized with increasingly elaborate excuses, which I was doing. <laughs> um, and um, in anesthesia, for instance, someone who um an alcoholic will stay away from work because then they can drink at home. So they'll mm-hmm. have a lot of days off sick. Whereas um, someone who gets their drug supply from work will offer for extra shifts, bank holidays, you know, not go on annual leave, and all these sorts of things, so they can continue to get the supply of of, um, drugs. I I think there's a saying in AA that you get to be sick and tired of being sick and tired when you're about to hit your rock bottom, Um, and um, a lot of people become depressed, um and they present with depression i think and that, i i was like that um sneaking drinks sneaking extra lines of coke when no one was looking you know um sort of using extra in in private um and I gets to the stage oh, friends stopped asking me out or to join them for dinner parties and stuff um and And things weren't the, the drugs weren't working any longer. Mm. you know I needed mm. far more to still not even get a decent high, so you end up using when you feel bad to feel better, but you also end up using when you feel good because you want to feel even better than that so mm. um it, it you're sort of tailor making your behavior just just to you know but at the end you you don't get high office anymore you just you need something to function, and I think that's one of the, the signs, you know, when you just have to take it to stave off withdrawals and things. Um, yeah, nothing, when nothing really makes you um, happy, mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. um, but you can't live with it and you end up feeling quite low and things, um, but you can't live without mm-hmm. it either. You know, mm-hmm. you need something to feel normal. normal in inverted
0: covers yeah does that echo your experience liz and that you often see people seeking help when there's almost like a sort of a turning point or um an intervention from someone else or you know is it often people just getting to their rock bottom before they they seek help
2: oh i think it varies i mean there was always this saying if if people you know go into 12 step groups there's loads of slogans and and denial stands for do (laughs) not even know i am lying i think I think that's the, the, the slogan. It's often something that other people notice um, yeah. first, I, in my experience, from talking to doctors. And they often don't know what the problem is, but they know something's not right. Um, and what, what Ruth has said spot on is, you know, I suppose the turning up late, the taking ages to finish um, sentences, uh, drinking a lot. So if people are using opiates, they tend to drink a lot because their mouths are dry so drinking water mm. not 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 necessarily alcohol um, but it it varies i mean i mean the thing is that the kind of cognitive things that happen with addiction is that people will often try and get caught they'll often get so sort of down the line where i mean i remember a doctor they needed help and and they they kind of ended up being sort of they got to the point where they couldn't turn the computer on at work and and they and they Colleagues sort of noticed something was going on, and they'd they'd noticed something for a while, but they didn't know what it was. And this this particular individual couldn't ask for help; they kind of had to show. They sort of were leaving these sort of patterns around. And and actually, this this particular individual did very well because they had colleagues who were really supportive and just said, "Look, you know, get it sorted," type of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, often people will know something's not right. Um, sometimes i mean sometimes sadly and this is this is what we, we don't like to see happen but it happens is that people will um be pulled up on a drink driving charge they will uh be caught with drugs by the police and that's usually the gmc are automatically informed then so so ideally we, we would want people to seek help before that happens because then you know i'm sure say so you'll talk about the memorandum later with the gmc that, that ph have but um you know and everyone's rock bottom is different i mean some people you know i mean some people think that you know you, you, you think of rock bottom having no career um you know no money that kind of thing but it but it it's different it's different for pe- different people i mean sometimes it's it's something that can be quite um other people might not think is a rock bottom and mm-hmm. and it is i mean i thought what Ruth said about not Wanting to live with it, but not wanting to live without it is absolutely key. There's this sort of stuckness that people get where they're stuck and they think, I don't know where to go. And then that 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 can be, um, y- you know, when people seek help. So it's quite individual, but there are patterns.
0: When I was um, researching this topic, I was looking for some statistics which were quite difficult to find. And I suspect it's a very underreported area. Um you know, across all healthcare professionals. Um, but Zaid, I was interested, do you, you know, in your experience, find that um, doctors particularly acknowledge this or present, you know, to use a medical term, later than than the general public? Um, or do they pick it up a lot sooner and do something about it?
3: Again, I think it varies greatly. Um, there's no sort of one size fits all uh, uh, answer to that, because we have had cases like Liz has talked about, where it's only come to light for following a drink driving offence, and then there are others who um, will present fairly early, actually saying, "Actually, I recognise that that this might be an issue, or might be becoming an issue, and I want to seek help about it proactively." And that's always a preference. You know, we would much rather that than than um, it be rock bottom or some sort of crisis. But sometimes the nature of the illness is actually sometimes a crisis is needed for people to to actually seek help, and that can be that can be therapeutic in it in itself, um, and it can be life changing. So um, there sometimes can, can be a lot of good to come out of come out of that. But in answer to your question, it does vary. We mm-hmm. have we have people present from very early on before things become a real embedded problem to right at the other end of the scale where where um you know lives and careers are at, are, are at risk
0: i did um th- one of the few statistics i did find that i was really surprised about was i suppose i thought that um potentially rates of addiction would be higher in healthcare professionals as a whole um and i was quite surprised to find that they mirrored well on the, on the of evidence we do have they mirrored that of the general population but that actually the recovery um in those working in healthcare was was much higher or you know very reassuring in that i think they are uh, looking at ongoing monitoring of people with addiction problems there were low rates of relapse with only with 71% remaining in recovery at 5 years which you know seems like you know a, a good statistic um in the context of of a a a wider problem i suppose um is there immediate steps that you have to take when somebody comes to you with this sort of problem um and uh, you know i'm thinking of things like safeguarding issues or talking to the gmc i know we've touched on that already Um, or are there is the primary responsibility for an organization like yourself to help the individual
3: Okay. So, uh this is an area which causes a great deal of anxiety actually to um understandably to doctors and it's one of the reasons that the organisation Practitioner Health was was created is to um because we know that doctors are very good at hiding their illness, um whether that be mental illness, addiction or other. Um they they will continue going to work um and it's often the last Thing to go actually work, you know. They can be, as Ruth has said, very high functioning um, addicts, and continue to treat patients. No one would know, but for some crisis, um, uh, which will happen. So. We take confidentiality very seriously and to that effect we set up memorandums of understanding with all the healthcare regulators and the first the, the first two were the GMC and the GDC, the General Medical Council and the General Dental Council. Now what those memorandums allow us to do is to treat our patients within set agreed parameters so that we don't automatically need to refer anyone with a mental illness or addiction to the regulator for fear that there might be a patient safety issue. So what the GMC, for example, have historically said is that if you have a health concern um, and uh, you are seeking treatment and advice and following that advice, it is not, it is not something that they are they would be overly concerned about. Mm-hmm. The main issue is that if you are in need of help, um, you seek help and you are following. The advice given to you including the advice around patient safety issues and removing yourself from work if needed and um, and so on, there would be usually no need for, for the regulator to become directly involved. There are very rare circumstances in which in which um, the, the regulator would need to be involved but they're, they're few, very few in number um, and as I said we take those cases very, very seriously. They're discussed at quite a high level at the organisation and uh, by and large there are a handful over the 15 years now uh, that we have been operating. So my main message to the listeners out there is that um, our memorandums of understanding are freely available on the website to look at. Um, We take confidentiality very seriously. Um, the, The reason that the service exists is because of the confidentiality issues and the barriers to accessing healthcare and that I think if um, if we reported everyone um, to the regulator for having a healthcare issue or an addiction issue, we probably wouldn't be still in existence.
0: Thank you. That's a, a really useful point of clarification. Yeah, Ruth, I'm interested in your reflections on that. Yeah, um, well, actually, I just want to say a bit more about um,
1: presentation, if I can. Um, Lizzie and um, Zay touched on, I'll mention the words fear. Um, I think... It's lovely when, when someone presents and says, I've got a problem, <laughs> but, but the majority, unfortunately, don't. Um, and I think the reason for that is a, a mixture of shame and fear. Um, the fear is losing a job. Um, you know. And if your job's at risk, often by the time you hit the rock bottom or you're summoned to the clinical director's um, office at work, you know, the the glue that's holding you together still when everything else has fallen apart, the glue that holds you together is a, is being a doctor. Mm. And if that's mm. threatened, you know, um, I think that's one reason why when someone's gone home after an intervention, you should be very careful. There's a big suicide risk then. Um and it's a big fear of the unknown, really, like what the hell's going to happen to me now? you know um, but the shame as well, a lot of people um do express shame. you know I'm a doctor i should I should know better than this. you know people don't expect doctors to end up like this, you know um and and until you meet people in peer support groups when you' once you're in recovery. You know, there's, there's a lot of shame that that you're um, you're the only doctor that's ever ended up like this. You know, and and it, it's addiction really at the end is a condition of isolation, and especially if you think you're the only doctor with it, and you're full of shame. You know, you're not going to be predisposed to talking to people and and, and getting help. I think it's important. You know that that. It, it's a condition of isolation and one of the treatments is people <laughs> um, you know in, in support groups aA narcotics anonymous and everything else so sorry I no just I that, that. thank
0: you so much I mean I think that that is um, encapsulates a lot of of you know what I'd come across when I talked about um, addiction both with patients and and with other doctors is that fear and shame uh, Liz, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I,
2: I suddenly got very fired up when I was listening to Ruth speak. I mean, I think shame <laughs> is, gosh, shame is such a painful emotion. Um, and it is about disconnection. I mean, you're absolutely right. And often shame that people can't stop or they feel they can't stop. Um, and, and sometimes people come into it, you know, the, the, the reasons that predispose people to addiction Um you you know there may be there may be difficult emotions in the background and shame is is often you know it's not uncommon for people to come into i think i think medicine can be quite a shaming place actually um you know and, and there's been a few there's been quite a lot of discussions about this um recently so shame is nearly always floating around and and shame is one of these emotions which um makes kind of people want to retreat um and it can get attached to people's identity and so they can feel like they're a bad person, they're a terrible person. So, and and, and that's the thing, people think um, that they are the only person and and a big plug for the BDDG as well, which Ruth has been involved with for, for ages. Um, and, you know, what I can say about doctors is there's, there's many, many doctors in recovery now who are... Um, you wouldn't know actually, unless you kind of went to one of these meetings. But you'd be surprised, and they're they're they're, they're living. You know, they they are no longer using. They're 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 engaging in life. They're you know enjoying their careers, and so, so you know it's so it's so important to kind of plug into these meetings and actually meet people. And you also get some CPD sometimes as well because you meet all sorts of senior colleagues who who kind of um, you know can teach you a bit about all sorts of stuff which i think is really needed so
0: i think leading on from the peer support side of things i really want to talk about um how doctors how they can support colleagues um, who they're worried about um, but first uh before we dive a little bit deeper into that um a quick message from our sponsor
4: what would you do if you received a letter from the gmc Did you know that over 37,000 complaints were received by the GMC in the last five years? If this happens to you, having the right support can make the experience a lot less daunting. If you receive a letter from the GMC, it's important to have professional protection and the support of an expert medico-legal team by your side. What sets medical protection apart Is the range of benefits that can assist and protect NHS consultants like you throughout your career. This includes support for managing unwanted media attention and protection for Good Samaritan acts worldwide. Don't be caught off guard. Get protected from just £549. Join now at medicalprotection.org. Data source. GMC Fitness to Practice Report, 2023. Cost quoted is the annual membership price for a UK medical consultant working exclusively in the NHS, subject to protection requirements and underwriting approval.
0: Okay, back to the show. Um, after doing a quick straw poll of um, of of some of my my colleagues, like I said, um, worryingly. There were people throughout many stages of our careers that we can remember worrying were struggling with addiction. And lots of us didn't really know what to do at the time or how bad the behavior had to get before you um, broached the topic with somebody. And I'm really interested in um, what your thoughts are on how, when, where you can talk to people if you're worried that they're, they're struggling with addiction.
2: Well, I think um, talk talk to them, I think. I think I mean, use what we're saying as kind of psychoeducation. I think, I think that's the buzzword, isn't it, as to how, I mean, Zaid so eloquently described the memorandum, um, um, which is freely available, and, and people need to know that they, you know, that they're going to be supported. It's, it's a kind of a firm sort of support because we have to protect patients as well. Um, but but talk to them. I mean, you know, get them a coffee and, and, and have a chat with them. Um, it I, I mean, I, I would definitely say start with open questions. Don't make assumptions because Ruth's absolutely right. Doctors are really good at kind of um, hiding is not the word, but they're really adaptive. They're really good at sort of, you know, kind of I think leaving kind of trails of breadcrumbs. Sometimes that something's something's not right. So open questions. I've noticed this. You know we're here to, to support and all that and have an idea of what you'll do next it's a bit like giving a diagnosis to a patient you'd never give a diagnosis to a patient without knowing what you'd do next so it's so kind of know where the support is I mean in um, England and Scotland doctors can refer directly to practitioner health um, and um, I, I believe Wales has a has a system also for healthcare professionals but I don't know as much about that um, I think if you're concerned that, um, you know, there are patient safety issues, then then it is wise to, to, you know, take steps to address that, which might involve encouraging people to, I mean, it's easier if they refer to practitioner health because we can see them and give them a, you know, and have that kind of discussion with them and, and, and provide um, medical certificate or something with a, with a, you know, we can put vague diagnoses on that, which I think is, is fair to say. Um, so it's easier if, if, if people do that. Um, but what they need to know is that they need to feel that people care. Um, I had a, a really interesting story the other day where somebody had a, an addiction problem and the boss came round to their house. And uh, they came round and they said, what's going on? And, and, and the individual told them and they said, well, we need you back as a doctor. You're a good doctor. Um, but you, you need to sort this out and we'll support you and um that was that was really important actually they needed to hear that
0: that's so powerful
2: yeah 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 because you because you think that you think that people are going to go right get out you know don't darken my doors again type of thing but people you know that there are you know that that was kind of a model really and then this this boss this individual who was the boss of a friend of mine you know make no mistake they, they had to you know they wouldn't have allowed them to go back to work and and, and see patients but they were still you know we we're with you on this. we'll help you out. I had another colleague who was taken out for a curry, I think by my colleagues, you know, and just said we you know we, we care, you know so it was
0: it was just really you know it was nice mm. yeah, preaching it with empathy rather than an accusation
1: i've I've been on both sides of the table with this one mm. Um, mm. but I, I think when when I've been speaking to someone who's who's um hitting the deck. Um I use this little phrases you can use like, look, you know, this is a bit of a difficult conversation, but it's been brought to my notice that, you know, um I think the most one of the most important things is not to be judgmental. Mm. Mm. You know, you get an awful lot more out of someone if if you, you don't appear judgmental, you know. And as Liz said, try include them in the conversation. Um by um just saying do you know why why you've, I've called to see you or um is there anything you'd like to say um and then at, at the end, I think it's quite important to say um what do you understand you know we've we've decided or or we've said during this conversation because if someone's really you know if their brain's in bits um plus the adrenaline of, mm. <laughs> of being in front of the medical director or something. There's quite a lot that you don't remember at these interventions. So I think it's important to make sure that they have heard the important bits. Um, And go to the um, intervention with a list of helpful numbers, um, Mm. because it's another suicide gap, uh, a suicide trap. If you just send someone home after blowing their life up um, and, and they live on their own, you know? So um I think that's nice about the curry list, you know. Um but it, it was I, if if I was asked to do an intervention and you know, I would always phone them either later on that evening or first thing the next morning. And it just shows that somebody cares enough to, to make sure that they're all right, you know, that they really aren't just been kicked out mm. sort of thing. Mm. So um yeah. And and it's you know people hold doctors in high esteem, but we do lie and cheat and steal to keep our habit going. And again, there's a lot of shame around that too. So um, we're not, we're not our better selves when when we're at an intervention. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So Sick Doctors First or um, British Doctors and Dentists Group. um, I've got a thing that you
0: can put on the website
1: or whatever. of of helpful contact
0: numbers yeah we'll definitely we'll add all of the um all of the organizations and resources that we've discussed in in the show notes because they're I think they're really, really important um so changing tack ever so slightly let's say that this hypothetical colleague that you've got you're worried about a patient safety issue because of their behavior um And you approach them and you do all the amazing things that um, Liz and Ruth, you've both suggested um, about being empathetic, um, you know, being caring, not judging them. And they're just not ready to engage with the process. Are you then sort of a bit stuck and you have to step back? Or if there is that patient safety issue, particularly as in some of our, you know, as you say, very few cases, but there may well be, is there another tack that you you can take without without making it seem more shameful or or making things worse? And Zaid, I suppose I'm, I'm looking at you for this question just because of um, your sort of medical legal experience. I think that's uh, it's a
3: really difficult exp- that's a really difficult situation to be to be put in to be found in. So, and this goes not just for. Um, this isn't just about addiction this is about any sort of um, illness whether it be mental or physical or or, or, or other. Um, so the General Medical Council says that you you need to ensure that your health is such that you're able to treat patients safely or, or worse to that effect so you, you should put others at risk um, you should take appropriate steps and um, if you do have a medical condition then you, you should seek advice um, and follow follow that advice, and particularly in respect to patient safety. I think it's the the difficulty is when, as you say, the person is not ready to accept that they may have an issue, or there might be a real uh, the, the, their insight is lacking. Um, thankfully, I think that those situations are in few few and far between, and I mm-hmm. think as an individual and as a registered medical doctor you would need to seek your own advice and you can do that via uh, your medical defense organization about what you might do in that scenario but before getting to that stage I would really hope um that the conversation could be had um with that individual about um about perhaps uh, taking some time off um to seek help um and providing the sources of help to them uh the empathetic approach that we talked about shortly beforehand because they will be scared um in the vast majority of circumstances about what it might mean mean for them and their future Um, and and sometimes it is just a journey sometimes it just takes some time for them to come round to accepting accepting that but i think if you are fearful that there is a patient safety issue and patients are at risk then of course you must not rest on your laurels you must take advice about what what you are obliged to do in those circumstances
0: Mm. And I think you know it's that conflict between looking after your colleague who you know and love and looking after patients, isn't it? And um, Liz, what were you going to say?
2: I was yeah. I mean, I mean, thanks sake, because that that um, it, you know that that's really clear actually because because this is something that we do get on the helpline quite a bit with with colleagues um, phoning up and saying what should I do. Um, and, um, you know, that's the advice we give. I, I was just going to say, if, if um, it's really to hark back to Ruth's point about talking to, 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 to colleagues when you have a concern. It can be useful sometimes to send an email or, or putting the... Because sometimes they don't remember what was said. Um, but what I would say, and I had this discussion with, with um, a colleague not long ago, is really avoid shaming language. Um, mm. So much of our... Um, because, because shame and suicide are linked um you know and, and that's often kind of a suicide is complex but but shame can can be and also change if people can't actually kind of move past something that's happened or kind of process what's happened that might be where when someone might might consider that so so any sort of language correspondence needs to be kind of you know treating the person like a human so that of, you know we had this discussion I, you know i hope you're feeling you know rather than um you know we, we, we are I'm just trying to think of it I've given that example and I can't think of an example now I'm disappointed by this behaviour um, you know we, we as a department are incredibly unhappy about this you know that, that mm. sort of language try and avoid that it happens an awful lot um, within the NHS and it's quite, it's quite infantilising actually mm. so it needs to be positive we agreed that you know that these are the sources of support we will be thinking of you we will be checking in with you um, you know, and we 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 value you as a human being because it it is about you know it it's about belonging it's about you do not want to cut this person out of the team, and doctors are sometimes a bit funny with other doctors who are ill. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Mm. Um, we we don't like it, and we often don't like talking about it. And um, and we can put our shame onto other people as well. And and uh, and it is it's about you know we need you need to change this. You know we can't we can't but actually we're going to help you um, with that. And then, you know, see when you're better, then, then come back.
0: Yeah, you're so, I think you're so spot on with that. You know, we are so scared of it in ourselves that the othering of other people almost sort of passes, passes it away from us. Um, Ruth, are there particular words that people should avoid that are really sort of triggering shameful words that maybe we wouldn't even realise that we were using that, that really sort of project shame onto people with addiction?
1: I think out and out calling someone an addict or, you know, I think you're an alcoholic, I, I think that's very avoidable and probably quite necessary in the early stages. Um, the, in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, people say that you're the ones that you're the one that decides you're alcoholic or not, you know when you've heard everybody else's stories and things, but that that's there still is stigma as someone said earlier attached to to the words isn't there? um yeah i i think um just going quickly back to to the um prevention type scenario, I think it's important to have some proof of of what you're you're talking about um and you can always, if someone really denies it, and you've got proof and, and more than one person's expressed their concerns, for instance, ask, ask the person, well, look, um, would you mind then, you know, giving us a urine or a hair sample? And um, if they refuse, you know, that's tantamount to, that's another topic altogether, um, but I would say, please don't report these people to the police, even if you, mm-hmm. um, if they've stolen opiates, you know, from, from work or propofol from the operating theatre. Um, there's enough to deal with, with the guilt, shame and threat of losing your job, you know. And going to court for the police who don't understand addiction <laughs> um, is just stressful on top of it. And the police, anything, any doctor who appears in court, I think someone else said, and is automatically reported to the GMC. So that brings that forward and you can't then benefit from the, the memorandum that practitioner health has um, or human resources because they, uh, yeah. they treat you as a disciplinary problem mm. and not a health problem.
0: Mm. I mean, you've mentioned um, human resources. Is there any role for occupational occupational health in these situations? Is that, um, I'm looking, you're nodding, Zaid. Is that something that, that is helpful to Absolutely. clinicians? Absolutely. I
3: think there has been a historical fear um, about seeking help um, with addiction because of fear of confidentiality again, so being reported to um, to various agencies, so including your employer, to the General Medical Council, um, and I think that um, most occupational health uh, clinicians will, particularly those working in healthcare or with healthcare professionals, this won't be their first rodeo. Mm. So this is not going to be the first time that they come across a healthcare, regulated healthcare professional with um, an, an addiction. So um, I think it, again, if you and I had I had this with one of my patients the other day. She was very worried about speaking to occupational health about um, her her addiction. Um, and I I said to her, ask for their confidentiality. Um, you know, with the, with the agreement for the information about confidentiality. What what is it? You know, so you understand what it is you're getting into before you have that consultation she did and she disclosed the addiction and the the, unsurprisingly the the um, physician was supportive and again this is not something um, which was new to to him so there is a role for occupational health uh, services um, and as i say they will have uh, dealt with addiction um, in in the past but i think the main message here and i'm going back to the scenario where you notice someone might be struggling is that it's easy to turn a blind eye mm. uh, because it's just easier to get on with your job go mm. home and forget about it and hope it's someone else pick it up but um i wouldn't en- try and engage um i would try and speak to them um because they will be feeling alone and there are lots of different um, offers of support out there. now. So occupational health is one potential. There's us, Practitioner Health. There's the um, uh, Sick Doctors Trust. Um, uh, so it's just important to seek help um, mm. from someone if you are struggling. You know, um, and I'd encourage that very much.
0: I want to, um, you know, talking about that, that colleague that's... That, might be in trouble um going back to what you said Ruth about you know if there's a few of you let's say you're all working in a team who have noticed behavior is that because I I suppose I was reticent about um asking about this because I was thinking it might feel quite threatening if four or five people sort of you know are coming at you saying well we've all noticed this is there a way of of framing that I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this Liz you know is it better for one person to go and speak to an individual one-on-one um is it better for a group of people Would that feel more or less threatening I mean I suppose it's all quite situational dependent but um I don't know if you've got any particular thoughts on that
2: well my, my gut feeling is it's probably easier
0: one-on-one but it mm-hmm. needs to be someone who has
2: appropriate authority I think, you know, that the buck probably has to stop with them and they can make decisions because um, and they need to know what to do next. Um, and I think we have to um, I mean, I think what, what Ruth was saying, you, you know, you've got to kind of take sort of, you know, facts, verifiable data to things rather than opinion. Um, I was talking to someone the other day about this and with regards to feedback, you know, people sort of say things there's got to be, you know, you have to, you have to bring facts into it and sort of, just kind of, you know, and 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 bring it to them and say and and, and see it. It's a bit. I suppose it's probably a bit like Breaking Bad news. Actually, you don't kind of go in mm. and you, you. know how they. What did they teach us how to do at medical school? That sort of, was it chunk and check or something?
0: Firing like, the warning shots. <laughs> something like that.
2: gosh, I can't remember. It was so long ago, um, but you. you you kind of go in and and sort of say, well, actually, I've, I've, you know, this is what we've noticed, um, da, 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 and actually give them the opportunity to share. And if they don't, then I think yeah, you'd have to say, well, we're concerned about because of this, this, and this, and you know, allow them to, and then and then sort of talk about what would be next. But I I I think a whole load of people, and it needs to be it needs to be a private place as well. Not not the cafe or the the cafeteria or the ward or the the sister's office or the you know it, it's got to yeah. just be um, because it's it's terrifying this it's yeah. it's absolutely terrifying and people are frightened that you are going to and people are frightened that people are going to phone the GMC up that's that's yeah. the fear you know they think they've got a bat phone with the GMC next to them and and that that's not necessary so so they would be my thoughts
0: just digging a bit deeper on that idea of um it being somebody a bit more senior um you know when I was chatting through with some of my friends about this um actually I think the time when it sort of was most relevant to us was actually you know going back a lot of years now um but when we were foundation doctors and you know you're obviously you're a couple of years out of med school you're the most junior people on the team you're quite scared maybe a bit reticent to go to your head of department who you maybe don't have that closeness in relationship with because of you know difference in age difference difference in hierarchy um is there you know is it still appropriate to have these conversations in you know at the same level or should you involve somebody more senior
2: i think it has to be someone who's got who can make decisions
0: but um often
2: the the decisions are easier i mean not the decisions the conversations are easier from a peer to peer but my, my fear would be that you might be in an echo chamber yeah you know where people are sort of um because this is a serious thing in in the sense that we we have to think about patients we have to think about the doctor as well you know it's it's really important that we we protect the doctor and we protect the patients so my, my worry would be that it might open up a kind of a bit of a proverbial can of worms and then everyone would be like running around going what what do we do you know yeah um, yeah but again i suppose it depends on how approachable your senior is because because you know we, we hear <laughs> of um you know we've heard you know we, we do hear of seniors that wouldn't be supportive so yeah
0: So uh, finding that person that's senior but that you can you can trust yes ruth
1: yeah, I I agree with um with Liz. I think um someone more senior hopefully might know a bit more about things and life, or mm. there's more chance that they may know someone who's been through the same. You know, the more senior you are, the more people you've met. So so yeah, I I agree with that.
0: Well, this has been such a rich discussion and we are sort of winding up towards the end. Um but I, I thought I'd end this. Um, obviously, you've all got this sort of rich tapestry of experience from lots of different angles. Um, I wanted to know what your one piece of advice, or, or two pieces of advice, if you had to push it, um, to a doctor who is worried that they might be addicted, um, what what would that piece of advice or support be?
1: I'll oh, say... Two things, I think, without being given much time to think about it um, is don't be afraid. Um, Doctors who get well get work. Um, That's a hackneyed phrase from recovery circles, (laughs) but it's true. You get well, you get work. I know doctors who've been homeless and are working now. I know doctors who've been in prison and, and are back at work as doctors. So don't give up hope is my message. Um, And the other thing is, um, (laughs) you might not believe it now, but um, a good day for you now, um, a bad day for you when you're in recovery is infinitely better than a good day when you're addicted.
3: Mm,
0: Really good advice. Thank you, Ruth. How about you, Liz?
2: I'm just, you had one of mine there, Ruth. Um, (laughs) I'm just thinking. um, The the thing is, I mean, hope, hope is really important because we talk about stigma. Doctors get well, you know, and health professionals get well. Doctors are really, um, their behaviour is quite driven. And if they can get kind of, if they can channel that, I mean, I've, I've met many doctors who are now working who've had all sorts of backstories. And if they can channel that kind of desire to get well, you know, into into the sort of direction of kind of you know i suppose moving on from this and and a lot of them approach it as if it was a kind of mrcp part one um you know that there's that drivenness there's that curiosity there's that compassion they're the two things actually they're the really two things that are key for for getting better from this kind of thing is is curiosity and compassion towards oneself Mm. curiosity as to what i suppose led one there um because there there usually is something underneath and and, and looking at that and also compassion because we're all doing the best we can and 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 Mm. and then we get more information more insight and then you know we can we can change so so please get in touch and, and speak to someone that's the most important thing
0: If that was your ad lib after Ruth stole your point, that was really excellent. You did very well on the spot. That's excellent, excellent points. A couple
1: of other things is... um, Nobody said it's going to be easy getting well Mm. again. It's probably one of the more difficult things you've done in your life, but, God, it's worth it. And, And Liz has maybe heard someone say this as well sometime. If you put as much effort into your recovery... you did into obtaining your drugs then you should do okay
0: (laughs) yeah yeah excellent point um and just to finish with you Zaid, what would your advice be
3: gosh so i think um all the goodies have been taken Um, (laughs) sorry i've left you last
0: (laughs) but um i would say the first
3: thing is to just remember that you are not um you're not going to be the first person nor the last person to suffer in this way that there are many others who've gone before and will, will go go before um and uh that if you're worried about it if you're thinking is there a, do I have a problem you're not quite sure speak to someone about it um ask read about it um there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of people and organizations who are willing and have devoted their careers really to helping people in, in these situations. So again, I know it's repetitive um, from from some of the previous advice points, but number one is you're not alone in this. Uh, number two, that if you are worried, seek help from someone.
0: Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for all of the resources that you've mentioned. Um, we'll link in the show notes um, to Practitioner Health and Sick Doctors Trust and all the other bits and pieces that we've mentioned. Thank you all so much for joining for this episode and thank you for listening to Doctor Informed. Uh, Sadly, that's all we have time for today. We're always keen to hear from our listeners for ideas of future discussions and reflections on the topics we've discussed today or in the past. Please get in touch. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Share with the people you know and tell your friends about it because it really helps people find us. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please subscribe to Dr. Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and you'll be notified of when our next episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us.